0: to Amazon
1: I'm gonna cut that out
0: yeah <laughs> sorry
1: to Consumer Choice Radio. Broadcasting here from Vienna, Austria, I'm one half of your host, Yael Owosowski, and I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, Mr. David Clement over there in Toronto. Hello, David.
0: Hello. How are things going?
1: Going pretty well. We're broadcasting, as always, on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Eastern Time, and you can download our Podcast version in the Apple, iTunes Store, Spotify, wherever you want to, on Um, It's a grand new day. We're in the mid of April, or May. Jesus, I need to go back and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm lost in time here. But uh, yeah, you asked how it goes. Today is a Victory Day. Today's opening day. Mm-hmm. So I actually took a yep. walk around the neighborhood this morning in Vienna, Austria, and was okay. able to, to walk my daughter. It was raining. But I saw what we would call in the olden days the tavern owners outside of their premises with their uh, pieces of chalk, with the chalkboards, showing the latest prices of the alcohol. So the bars and restaurants are open Ooh. for business.
0: Very cool. What does that look like? Like, is it is the setup different than than if it used to be, or are they going to try and go back to normal as much as possible?
1: Well, I haven't done my journalistic um, inspections as of yet, um, but okay. I, will, I will do this for the show. I will go and um, you know drink heavily for that purpose. But yes. from the restaurant that I've seen that's around the corner, they have these park benches outside, and they have this entire green area on the park bench that's all painted green. It says Corona-Free Zone, and then the, there's a little red area that says Danger and then essentially, you know, you're not sitting next to the group beside of you or you have some social distance. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. And we're going to see what the rules are. I think the the government here has allowed the restaurants to come up with their own rules, um, apart from the little guidelines. So yep. what are they going to require in terms of masks, in terms of seating? Yeah, I'll see. That's going to be a nice little afternoon endeavor. I'll go and check that out. And then I'll be... Uh, Speaking on on Joe Kedanashi's program on this same station, just uh, maybe a bit buzzed because I'll be doing some. I mean, it's look, it's for journalism purposes.
0: Yes, yes, of course. It's, I mean, it is solely to see the experience so that you can properly comment on it. Yeah, otherwise you wouldn't do
1: that. Yeah, I mean, there's otherwise, no, of course not. I'd be staying at home, I'd be following all directions. So, yeah, that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, A couple other things in the news, but uh, I guess first we want to start off with a a grand interview. Uh, We were very lucky uh, to be able to speak with someone of high regard, um, someone that we've mentioned on this program before that we've actually played clips from. Um, So we were very excited, proud, and lucky, uh, mind you, to sit down with Brendan Carr. He's a commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission. Um, Oddly enough, we're playing this on the radio, and his organization is responsible for regulating the radio. Uh, But I think we're in compliance from what he told us. Uh, So uh, doing everything correctly, uh, not breaking any rules, no cuss words. So um, I guess we'll play the clip, we'll play the the interview, and then we'll come back, maybe give some of our comments on it as well after the fact, and uh, we'll get back to you after this. uh, Awesome,
0: yeah, let's play the clip.
1: Go ahead, Jamie. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. We're speaking with Commissioner Brendan Carr of the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, um, someone who's been very prominent in the news and uh, who has been someone that we've been following at the Consumer Choice Center for a while. So, Commissioner, thanks so much for taking the time to come our program.
2: Great to join you all. Really appreciate it.
1: Of course. Um, So this is obviously a perfect time where everyone is connected. Everyone's online. Um, There's a lot of people who are using tools they've never used before. And there's a lot of pressure on the Internet infrastructure. So I guess first question to throw it up, um, what is the FCC kind of doing around this time? What are you prioritizing? Uh, What should people know about the work that FCC is doing with our Internet, our online platforms and everything else that's out there?
2: Well, look, Americans more than ever before are relying on their home internet connections for so much today as we've been sheltering in place uh, during this COVID pandemic. So a lot of us are working from home. We are trying to teach our kids through distant learning technologies, uh, accessing telehealth. So it has been really uh, a surprise stress test of the internet infrastructure. And it's held up surprisingly well. Uh, Not really surprising to me, but perhaps surprising to other people. We've seen an increase in network traffic on the wired networks, roughly around 20, 25%. We've seen a little bit less increase in network traffic on the mobile wireless networks, anywhere from one or 2% to less than 10%. I think that reflects in part that so many people are staying home and staying put. And it's actually a good thing because our wired connections have far greater capacity than our mobile wireless. So the networks have been performing very well. I think that's a reflection of the regulatory status we've had. We've incentivized private sector to invest in the networks And so U.S. networks really have been outperforming networks in a lot of other parts of the world.
0: And when you say like if you could uh, maybe uh, quantify that for some of our listeners, because I know a lot of people will be interested to know, like, wow, how much or or, or how much better is is the U.S. uh, system doing? Can you quantify that at all for some of our listeners and walk them through what that actually looks like and what, what some of these performance measures are?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting data that's out there from not just carriers, but third-party providers. Uh, There's a group actually out of Australia that I've been talking to pretty frequently uh, called Casper Data House. And folks can go to that website. They actually have an internet pressure map that they've put up that measures the changes uh, in internet pressure, essentially, in countries around the world. They have a really detailed map you can click through, and it shows the U.S. performing very well right now. And again, this is a measurement of what was the status quo in your country before and after. So it's a very good measure uh, to take a look at.
1: Oh, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. We'll uh, try to embed that in our notes.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. We'll add that to the
0: show notes for sure. Um, On that that global side of things, uh, I mean, I bring this up because full disclosure, I find you to be one of the most entertaining people on Twitter to follow. (laughs) Um, You very regularly mix it up with um, official representatives of the Chinese Communist Party. What is it that the American public should know about the Chinese Communist Party and the ongoing domestic debate about 5G and companies like Huawei?
2: You know, it's it's interesting. I think for a long time, the debate about U.S. foreign policy uh, with respect to communist China was something you read about uh, in the dusty pages of foreign policy journals. Well, that debate has jumped out of those journals to the kitchen table of everyday Americans. So many people right now are out of work, their kids are out of school, and I think that's a direct relationship to the oppressive nature of the communist regime. So I think everybody in their daily lives right now feels the consequence of communist China's oppression more than ever before. Early on in December and January, uh, they uh, essentially arrested whistleblowers that tried to warn the world about COVID. They intentionally put out misleading information about human to human transmission I think those early steps by communist China exacerbated the global spread of COVID-19. If they'd acted earlier, uh, there are studies that show that 90 or 95 percent of this could have been prevented. They talk about this vaunted uh, Wuhan lockdown uh, and that they shouldn't bear any responsibility because they did their part. That couldn't be farther from the truth. They didn't lock down Wuhan until January 21, 24, sometime in there. In the three weeks before that, 7 million people of a city of 11 million, left Wuhan, including those that were infected, including on direct flights out of the country. This idea that they locked down Wuhan and prevented the spread, just doesn't match up with the facts.
1: Wow. Yeah, there's definitely uh, more that we're reading about everything with uh, China and and its role, and we've tried to cover that on this program, uh, had a good number of interviews. Um, You know, staying on that topic, um, again, David mentioned that you, you've actually, you know, you're in these Twitter matches slinging with guys who are Department of Propaganda, Ministry, whatever. Uh, you know, what is that like? Are you receiving any any feedback from other people who might be in, in various agencies or the government? Are you uh, perhaps getting other uh, intelligence or reports about some of these people and their actions? Is this a kind of Russia Gate 2.0 that we kind of see coming? I mean, what, what is happening with the infiltration of the Chinese Communist Party into social media in the U.S.?
2: Well, look, there's nothing that a, a communist likes less than hearing the truth spoken freely and spoken loudly. So I've engaged, you know, where I can on my platform, uh, on Twitter, to engage directly with some of the chief propagandists of that regime. Uh, that's resulted in their one of their chief propagandists uh, blocking me on Twitter. So I had to stand up a new uh, Twitter account just to keep an eye on the account of that uh, foreign for communist China so, I've enjoyed the back and forth and helping to to bring truth to light because look, the Chinese people themselves are often the most direct uh, most directly and most frequently brutalized by the communist regime. so we've got to draw a very clear distinction between uh, the Chinese people and the communist regime that is engaging in really active uh, conduct
0: yeah i I mean that's that's a, a a huge point for sure in terms of the people who actually suffer most. Uh, at the hands of the regime. I always find it ironic when I see official uh, Chinese Communist Party representatives on Twitter, which is a platform that is not available to ordinary Chinese people. So they unfortunately do not get to see you engage with um, with their uh, unelected uh, officials and representatives. Um, shifting gears from China to some domestic policy, um, some would maybe say that the would make a, make a joke about California's own uh, internal policies and it looking like China. I don't know if I go that far, but AB five in California, the gig economy uh, legislation you've written about this policy. Yael and I have talked about it, um, about how it puts jobs at risk from your perspective. What were some of the most problematic aspects of, of that law?
2: Look, AB5, which is a, a state law passed in California, is one of the worst job killers uh, that, that California has ever passed. And let me tell you, that's that's saying something given some of the legislation that's come out of there. This is a bill that was backed and pushed uh, by organized labor to try to shut down independent contractors that were working in a range of businesses, not just Uber and Lyft. That's that's the headline companies that they talk about. But take journalists. You have know, a lot of contract journalists, and that legislation put a cap and said, Uh, A journalist working on a contract basis can't write more than 35 stories a year per publication. And that just fails Econ 101. I mean, think about it. When you've got 35 stories out of a journalist and they go to submit that 36, do you think that the newspaper is going to hire them on full-time just to get that 36 story? Of course not. They're going to move on to the next contractor. So it really, in some ways, empowers uh, and disenfranchises. On the other hand, uh, these people are trying to work. And what's so interesting is just last week or this week even the uh, California Attorney General filed lawsuit to enforce a b five Think about that so many Americans are out of work space to stay in the economy. we should be making it easier for people to lift themselves up, lift their families up and work, not suing to make it harder
0: yeah um i it's, it's it's always interesting I mean, Yael and I spent a lot of time talking to people about why some of these services are important. And like you said, obviously, Uber and Lyft are headline, uh, headline uh, companies that people love to go after. Um, generally speaking in terms of California, we're seeing more companies leave the state. I'm sure you've probably seen some of the, the Elon Musk, uh, debate on Twitter, which is quite entertaining about leaving, leaving the, the state for, for Texas. Um, on that on that note of some serious pushback online, the FCC and your colleagues have received quite a bit of um, i don't know how i would how I would describe it other than maybe hate uh, in regards to net neutrality people beating the drum that the internet was going to close and speeds were going to rapidly decline and you were going to get charged by the minute for every every website or service you use Uh, can you walk us through where the us is post net neutrality and maybe calm some of those fears from the naysayers that still uh are beating that drum out there
2: yeah look net neutrality was one of the the greatest political hoaxes we've seen in this country and given some of the stuff going on here uh that's that's saying something to your point we were told that reversing the two-year obama experiment with heavy-handed regulation of the internet going back to the same bipartisan approach we had for 20 years was gonna be literally the end of the internet. That you have to pay for tweets. I think Banksy had a viral tweet. You have to pay for tweets or you know, pay extra for this, pay that. There's all kinds of predictions. You know, Not one of them have come true. What has happened? Internet speeds are up about 70% since that decision. Uh, small cells, which are the building blocks for 5G, have gone out, an accelerated clip. More miles of high-speed fiber have gone into the ground than ever before. And the reason the US networks held up so well during the boost in uh, usage during the COVID-19 pandemic was because of all the private sector investment that our reversal of Title II helped unleash. So it's one of those great stories where, you know, we were told it was the end of the internet and it was the end of that old internet, but now we have a better, faster, uh, more competitive internet as there's more providers competing for your broadband dollars than ever before.
1: Yeah, as someone who has uh, been writing about this since, you know, since that time, uh, I do have to take a moment and thank you so much for that. It was, it was a lonely path back then to, to, <laughs> to try to be the one who was, who was defending the idea that we did not need, you know, to have this uber control of the Internet, that actually innovation is pretty good. And it's one of the main reasons why we're the richest, most successful countries in the world, not because of some government bureau or agency telling yeah. us what to do on the Internet.
2: Yeah, and hats off, you know, to Chairman Pai, my fellow commissioner, who obviously led is leading the agency, led the agency through that. No one, I think, will ever know, uh, really personally, what he and his family went through over this policy issue. Uh, he was uh, obviously had a lot of death threats. He had to go to 24-hour uh, security protection. Uh, there were bomb threats being called in uh, all over this hoax, where people on the far left said it was going to be the end of the internet. And if you look at what's happened, it's unbelievable. But he walked that line. Uh, he stayed true to his principles. And every single person, including those that called in the bomb threats, uh, are better are, are, are benefiting from a better, faster, cheaper internet. It would have been very easy for him just to walk away and say, it's not worth it. It's not worth the personal risk. But he stuck to his guns. And uh, it's, it's a great story.
1: That's true. I mean, it's been amazing to see. I mean, this is um, something that just... Everyone online, massive, you know, online censorship. These are all the banners that we heard back in the day. Everyone's blacking out the screens, you know, for net neutrality. Uh, this is this is kind of one era where we see that, okay, free enterprise has actually delivered something. And actually, you can have good government. You can have good government agencies that mm-hmm. respect our rights and our freedoms. So again, uh, applaud you and uh, Commissioner Pie, for that. it's It's been amazing to see. Uh, one other question we wanted to get into is you've written and you've been very vocal about the notion of fake news um, and uh, specifically right now with Um, the coronavirus, or as we call it, the Carol Baskins virus, because we don't want to get censored on these platforms. Um, (laughs) If we are, you know, now looking at a day and age where social media companies are regulating a lot of things and really trying to siphon out the good information and the bad, um, you've kind of been public about the new advisory board that they have over at Facebook, sort of like a grand appellate court of the internet. Um, Sort of what are your thoughts on what these platforms are doing? Um, I know people going back and forth as to what the government is allowed to do or not allowed to do. And these are are private platforms. Just what if you think of that as a citizen and then also as a commissioner?
2: Yeah, I've been pretty outspoken on these issues. I think this entire content moderation approach where you're deciding what people can say, what they can't say, what to take up, what not to put up, uh, it's a fraud endeavor. Uh, What people really don't get is these decisions aren't made by some oracle of truth. Uh, These decisions are made by people, and they're made by people in power, and they're either biased or they're fallible. And so my approach has always been more speech is better than less speech. Of course, there's First Amendment issues, and these are private platforms. And so I don't speak of this directly as a First Amendment issue when it comes to posts on these platforms. I speak of it as a free speech issue. I think the culture in this country embraces more speech, and I think that's the best approach. Some people say, okay, fine, political speech, we won't fact check that, although most people do. They'll say, what about health and safety? Isn't that an easy low hanging fruit? It's never that easy. You know, wearing face masks for COVID 19. Uh, Representative Swalwell tweeted about a month or so ago, stop wearing masks. A month later, he reversed course and said, it's, you know, everyone needs to be wearing masks. And so, at which point would you have stepped in under health and safety and taken down one of those tweets? That's why I think let's just promote more speech, more information. In the long run, it's a far better approach.
0: It's actually funny you bring up some of these these politicians and uh, what could be considered fake news, one of our previous guests, who's a passionate school choice advocate. um, There was a long winded exchange with Elizabeth Warren at the time, saying that she sent her kids to public school and she had run these campaign ads about public schools and how she believed in the public school system and her kids and all that. And then it turned out, obviously, that she sent her children to private school, which we certainly don't criticize her for. Um, But it begs the question. Is that fake news now? Is she, like, is that deceitful? Is she lying? Do we, does does she should she lose her ad accounts with social media uh, platforms? Um, is she engaging in the in the actual act that she is so desperately trying to solve with some of her proposals um, for other regulations? So yeah, it, it raises some some very good um, very good. <laughs> Uh, hypocritical questions or instances for our audience to look at uh, in in wrapping up what can Americans expect from the FCC moving forward uh, throughout the remainder of of the pandemic? Um, what are some of maybe some of the big items that you guys have planned in the short term in the next year or so?
2: yeah, we've taken a lot of really concrete actions in the last couple of weeks and months, so we've boosted network capacity by adding more spectrum into the commercial marketplace and facilitating uh, spectrum swaps among private providers. We've added more funding to our telehealth programs, our existing ones. We've actually stood up from scratch uh, entirely new telehealth programs to support uh, remote patient monitoring other technologies where you don't need to go to a brick and mortar facility. We have a new program we stood up to support the connectivity to people in their homes. We've taken action to make sure that families, low income families, stay connected during the pandemic so really we've taken you know five or six different categories of actions and we're going to keep doing that to make sure that Americans stay connected
1: Wow. This is uh, this is exactly why the FCC is now one of our, our favorite uh, regulatory agencies <laughs> out there. Definitely. Uh, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 1067 FM. We've been speaking with Commissioner Brendan Carr of the FCC. You can follow him on Twitter, Brendan Carr FCC. You can find him there. Thanks so much for, Commissioner, for taking the time.
2: I appreciate and it. Thanks for having me on. Time? Cheers. Everybody knows.
1: Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. You listen to an interview there with FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr. Uh, what a guy! What a guy!
0: Yeah, I mean he's he's for you. Don't usually see those in government speak so pointedly and openly on various subjects. I, I mean, for him, it's especially uh, important when it, when it comes to questions about the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and I know that I referenced this in the interview, but if you if you don't follow him on Twitter already, you really should because he regularly um, is out there mixing it up with, uh, with government officials. It's quite entertaining um, to see someone do that. So I definitely recommend all of our listeners to give him a follow. Yeah, and that's at Brendan Carr FCC on Twitter. Yeah, I mean
1: that's a question I always kind of wanted to ask him, but I don't know how to, and it, it actually makes me sound like – I, I don't know what type of person, but I want to say, how are you allowed to say this?
0: <laughs>
1: Aren't there restrictions that don't allow you to like be this open and political and I don't know? But then again, people might ask that same question of us, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, some of them. I, I wish we. I, I wish I could have asked this again. It's one of those things where it's like, how do you ask this in like the appropriate way? Um, I mean, there was one example where he was tweeting back and forth with um, someone from the like foreign ministry's office um, from the Communist Party of China, like an official delegate. Uh, And he just started tweeting the names of all of the people who have just disappeared, like all of the original COVID, uh, Carol Baskin virus whistleblowers. And he was like (laughs) just tweeting the names and like of all of these people who've disappeared. And he's like, well, where are these people? Like, where'd they go? Wow. And, and yeah, just like he uh, he really mixes it up, which is refreshing to see and entertaining.
1: Yeah, and he's in a position that, and that's, I think that's what we're just trying to understand, because the FCC is an independent agency. It is a part of the government. It is uh, overseeing sort of our our broadband and telecommunications services. And it is an independent board and and really like the day-to-day is about that. But that position allows you to comment on many other things. I don't know. I think we're just too used to dealing with politicians who are kind of dressed up and wear suits (laughs) and stay within the confines of acceptable and tolerable conversation. And we don't have people who... Um, more often than not we'll just speak from principle and be very open and frank i think that's what's so refreshing um that's very cool we're gonna we actually did a video of it if you're listening to this on the radio so you can go to consumerchoiceradio.com and we have our our video interview as well which might be a little entertaining and you you actually might see what david and i look like in our our layers
0: (laughs) yes i'm starting to day by day look more and more like uh Tom Hanks from Castaways, the beard gets longer and grizzlier
1: oh yeah, I've seen some people on you know everyone's doing family or friend zoom meetings and uh, I've seen a few people there they they're sporting some pretty long locks you know i mine yeah. are my hair doesn't go down, my hair goes up, so i uh, i'm I'm just getting a kind of a clown thing going on, but um you know the the barbers are open, so I can definitely schedule someone and, and go see it it's just Eh, timing. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah. So let's let's look what else is in the in the news and what's happening. Um, I guess big news from our end that I really wanted to highlight, and uh, I'll be talking about this with Joe, and we'll actually be running an ad on this uh, station. Um, David, if you and I want to record that later, but it's the yep. Consumer Innovation Manifesto. I'm just gonna make sure I have the website here. Right? Um, so the Consumer Innovation Manifesto was the brainchild of our colleague Bill Wietz. Bill Wietz is uh, the international man of mystery, Uh, Luxemburger, able to write and speak uh, up to four languages, does so uh, all the time in media. And he had this brainchild of, let's put together a piece of legislation that will be multinational, that focuses on the response for consumer policies post the Carol Baskin's virus. And as yes. the crisis unfolds, there's all this stuff that's happening. What are the rules, the laws, the changes that we can recommend in our various jurisdictions to try to make an impact? So I'll give you an example from the American version. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about the uh, fast approval of drugs, uh, which mm-hmm. is very has been proven very important right now. There, know, looking and racing to get a vaccine. That's very important. A lot about healthcare insurance models that provide flexibility. Very important. Repealing certificate of need laws, uh, which is all about hospital construction and where you're actually able to build things. Modernization of alcohol policy and food delivery. Amazing. We have legal reform, reciprocity of professional licenses. We have easing restrictions on sharing economy services and a lot more. So, uh, hopefully, there's, there's a good amount packed into the U.S. version. And then, David, you wrote the Canadian version, which features yes. similar things, but some things that are different as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, a couple of the big ones that, that we focused on were uh, telemedicine. So um, that's something that didn't exist uh, prior to this crisis. Uh, doctors were not allowed to actually bill for anything that wasn't in person. Uh, So naturally, that just creates a lot of bad incentives uh, where you have to go to the the walk-in clinic or you have to go to your doctor, sit in the waiting room, go in, sit down in front of the doctor for something that can be as trivial as getting a prescription refilled uh, because that's the only way that the doctor is allowed to bill for it. So a lot of provinces have changed that rule um, so that people don't have to go and sit uh, in these waiting rooms. And we're making the argument that um, that 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 those uh, that that restriction shouldn't be brought back once everything has subsided, and that you should actually be able to just have a teleconference, a video conference, or a phone call uh, with your doctor, um, and let the doctor deem what is and isn't worthy of an in-person appointment. Um, that just makes the the overall healthcare system so much more dynamic, which is. A big problem for anyone who's followed the Canadian healthcare system. So, um, that's a big plus. Um, variety of different delivery options uh, that we focused on. So, alcohol from uh, retail or from uh, restaurants, uh, which wasn't allowed before. Cannabis delivery, which wasn't allowed before, um, as well as talking about what we should do when we start traveling again, and specifically the rules around airports and airlines oh yeah um, so argument is getting rid of some of these domestic um, airline rules that prevent certain companies from being able to carry domestic routes so unless you are majority owned uh, majority Canadian owned uh, airline, you can't actually do domestic routes in Canada which yeah. um, is a huge disservice to consumers because I don't see any reason why uh, British Airways shouldn't be able to do a milk run across Canada, start in Vancouver, pick some people up in Toronto, head to London, um, or vice versa. Uh, but all of those things are prohibited. And so
1: well, uh, when um, do we do start to add traveling... To, that, to add to that, David, I think that is that is something that is uh, in place across the world in many circumstances. We definitely have it in the U.S. I think that's the, yep. ca- the cabotage rules. And I have not seen really anybody writing about this or doing anything about it or trying to drum it up Um, I I don't know are there any other organizations that have discussed this because I know we've we've talked about it we put it in some press releases Uh, it's definitely something philosophically I mean if you just look at it economically come on this is the way to do it and I've done this in Australia you take like uh, one of these Qatar Airways or Dubai or Emirates or something like that, and you're able to fly from Sydney to Melbourne and then to New Zealand and then going all the way back, but in Canada and the U.S., you're not able to do that. Do you, have you seen yeah. any other orgs pushing this, really? I don't think so.
0: I, I haven't really. No, it's it's very quiet on that front. Um, I, think it's, I think it's something that a lot of people don't really realize. So those laws do exist um, in all sorts of other countries, like in Europe. The thing is, is that the demand for domestic flights in a lot of these European countries, because they are so much smaller in terms of geography, um, and so you don't see, um, you don't feel the pain of this regulation in the same way as you do in Canada, where flying to Vancouver from Toronto is, is pretty much this almost the same flight as flying from Toronto to London. Um, And it's actually often cheaper to fly from Toronto to London than it is to fly from Toronto to Vancouver, which um, would be like it being cheaper to go from New York to uh, London uh, as opposed to New York to L.A. Hmm. Um, And so, yeah, it's really important that especially for a country this large uh, with so few people comparatively um, that we allow for global carriers to Uh, To serve domestic routes. Yeah, Um, just it would just be a huge plus for everyone and you would see a significant uh, Push downward on prices because all of a sudden you could all of a sudden various new routes become Profitable for airlines because they can do things in connection to a final destination Um, And and use let's say one or two cities in Canada as stopping points along the way so um, yeah, lots in there, lots in the manifesto um, for for regulators and legislators to look at. Hopefully, um, some of them can uh, open this up and, and have a look at what our playbook would be um, for a post-Carol Baskin virus world.
1: Yeah, and I think, uh, one, in the United States, we have this mostly in place through the Jones Act. Um, yes. Some things are a bit different, obviously, in the cabotage. But one person I would point to that I, I think is... Let me just 100% make sure. That is on Twitter. Uh, yeah, it's definitely him. So it's Colin Grabow. That's okay. C-P Grabow, G-R-A-B-O-W. So he's actually a policy analyst at Cato, at the Cato Institute. And his entire shtick is Cabotage Jones Act stuff. Okay. Um, so his, in his Twitter profile, hashtag in the Jones Act. And what the Jones Act did is it essentially made it illegal to have any other flagged ship carry goods and services between any U.S. ports, which sounds like, oh, yeah, of course, that, that's fine. But when you think of places like Puerto Rico and Hawaii, that means if you want to ship something to Hawaii, it can only be done with an American ship from an American port. So you yes. can't you can't have like um whatever a Mexican ship or something that goes from San Diego to Hawaii or something like that and yep. when the hurricane happened in Puerto Rico Many of these rules were suspended temporarily. Huh? There's another theme <laughs> um, to allow other ships to come and, and bring supplies and help, you know, from other islands and other nations. So yet again, examples, uh, you know, that's why the Consumer Innovation Manifesto is important, because we're talking about examples of laws that are in a time of crisis or in a time of need suspended. And that brings us back to the table to say, OK, was it even necessary to have these laws there in the first place?
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's maybe the only silver lining from this crisis is that it's very quickly showing everyone the very long list of regulations that were never needed um, and that were a disservice to everybody involved all the time. Um, and now we're seeing them kind of firsthand because people are going, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Why what, Why are we – like?" it's making uh, – Pandemic response worse. It made responses to various hurricanes, whether it be uh, Katrina years and years ago or the the hurricane in Puerto Rico, much worse. Um, and so, yeah. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, there is some. There are some forward-looking legislators who can hop on and uh, help us uh, continue to push to to keep these regulations off the books.
1: Yeah, great. And and that's definitely what. You know, I'll be focusing on, and I know you'll be doing that too, David, is figuring out who we can partner with. So if any of you guys are listening on the radio or the show and, you know, are, are interested in actually pushing these over the finish line um, or over the touchdown line, depending on the support that you like, uh, yeah. we're, we're definitely on board. And this is something that we're drumming up a lot of support for. We've already reached out to a lot of groups and a lot of legislators. Um. People are very interested. I think uh, this, this could have good legs. And now's the time to do it. A lot of people have plans. Not everybody can carry them out. So you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker 1067 FM. You can go and find out more about the Consumer Innovation Manifesto on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. So I do have one article, and I guess it's a news event that has uh, hit us uh, we've talked a lot about lockdowns, David. We've talked uh, about you know the differing rules between states, provinces, countries. And then we get a ruling from the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Did you see this by mm-hmm. any chance?
0: I, I saw the headline, so you're going to have to educate me on the actual details. But yes, I did, uh, I did see the headline. So what happened here
1: is that you had the Wisconsin Supreme Court. In Wisconsin, the state, they obviously had a a lockdown that was imposed by the governor, all the same. And what happened was a group of Republican legislators, they actually filed a lawsuit against the administration of the Democrat governor, Tony Evers. And uh, essentially, they had already had a lockdown order, and then he had put in a new order to extend. And what the Republican lawmakers did is they filed a lawsuit, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court actually sided with them, And they came down 4-3, and this really looks at the laws around emergencies and what governors can declare as emergencies. And essentially what the Supreme Court said is that the governor, by doing it unilaterally and not working with the legislature, it was actually unconstitutional. And quoting from the justices, they wrote that the court was not challenging the governor's power to declare emergencies, but in the case of a pandemic, which lasts month after month, the governor cannot rely on emergency powers indefinitely. They must Hmm. rely on the legislature. So then the article that you see in, like, Washington Post is, after Wisconsin court ruling, crowds liberated and thirsty descend on the bars. (laughs) <laughs> and then there's just a bunch of videos of uh quote maskless people hanging out in bars drinking um there's it's this type of weird shaming that you've obviously seen and i've probably even done where you're like oh, look at all these people who are gathered not wearing masks not social distancing
0: <laughs> yes uh <laughs> i i have not um i have not I uh, have been shamed, shamed myself oh, but... and I have not i don 't think I have shamed anyone else, but I do have some friends who had some driveway peers, and they were shamed by a neighbor not face to face but by calling the bylaw officer
1: <laughs> okay well that 's even worse come on yeah <laughs> you're narking on people who are oh goodness yeah, I mean that 's the story we played a couple a uh, couple weeks ago about New York uh, city, I think where they have this hotline. And then people are, <laughs> what were they doing? They are they were putting in all kinds of complaints, all kinds of bogus things, just like ramping up the complaints and all all kinds of messages and images and, and stuff that was. People
0: started sexting the, the phone go. number.
1: <laughs> Jeez. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was, that's a big story. I mean, every. I mean, look, this is all new. We don't know how to deal with it. And what makes the United States so interesting is the laboratories of democracy, the experiments that every state is making. Some states are are very different Um, in where this program is broadcast in North Carolina. um, I know that the order is still ongoing until May 31. They have opened up the beaches, which is good. And we are in phase one in North Carolina of easing. So we're going to see what that means. Yeah. I mean, Look. I don't want to talk too much more about it because after a while it gets very tedious. But yep. you do have crowds that are clamoring to get back to work, and that, that's really what it's about. We're, it's at, we're standing at what thirty-five million unemployed. So essentially, the population of Canada is unemployed. That—that's what the United States numbers are telling us.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty. That's pretty staggering.
1: Yeah, that's huge. So.
0: Yeah, we'll be following that.
1: Uh, A lot more to come. Uh, David, you actually had a couple of articles that I wanted to highlight that you had published. Uh, We are here to promote the great work of our colleagues at the Consumer Choice Center. So uh, hit us up with some of your your latest articles that you were able to get through.
0: Yeah, so I had one on how Canada can avoid a beef shortage. So uh, much like the U.S., there are uh, issues in the supply chain. And what's... uh, Funny, or what kind of prompted me to write this is I essentially saw a reporter explain that there was this pending shortage, but that the shortage had nothing to do with the lack of cows. Uh, It had everything to do with the fact that most uh, beef processing is done essentially in three plants.
2: so if any of those three
0: plants go down uh, because of of, uh, the pandemic, so if they have to shut their doors, it's a, huge, um, it's a huge kind of kink in the chain and stops uh, beef from from hitting store shelves. And so I dug into why this was the case, um, what were the reasons why there were only essentially three large uh, meat processors in the country. And it mostly came down to outdated regulations that pushed small and medium-sized processors out of the industry. Uh, so I mean something so silly is if you are a processor in Ontario you can only have your beef sold in Ontario unless you have your beef federally inspected by a federal re- regulator so an entirely separate different set of rules um, which is so ridiculous when you consider I mean there's no one is seriously gonna make the argument that beef consumed by consumers in Ontario isn't going to meet the safety standards for consumers in Alberta or in Nova Scotia or anywhere else. Um, so just get the, the process of getting rid of some of these ridiculous rules um, that were implemented over the years could help actually avoid a beef beef shortage um, in the long run uh, and make the market a little more dynamic. It's a strange world out there.
1: Well, that's good. Good to hear. Yeah, I know the there's a lot of concerns about what's going to happen with different meat processing plants, and, and to know that there are only three in Canada, is that's weird. That's strange. I don't know what's what's going on there. There's there's a lot of these things that we're learning, that things are centrally managed and controlled, and there's, there really aren't that many of, of these kind of uh, middleman factories or institutions. Uh, that's pretty concerning, but... Good to know that you have the article on there. We'll link to that, um, all of that, on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. Good stuff. And then you had one more article as well, and this is similar to the topic that we discussed with our colleague Fred last week about IP patents and the race to a vaccine for the Carol Baskins virus.
0: Yes, yes. Um, So that article was about patents. So the federal government in Canada has suspended aspects of the Patent Act, essentially saying that um, when the time comes, uh, they could actually suspend the patent for whatever the vaccine or the cure is, uh, and then allow generic manufacturers to mass produce um, the, the vaccine or the cure. And I just outlined how that was most likely uh, misguided, and it's probably going to hurt the process of uh, innovation and drug development um, not only just in, in, in Canada in terms of the domestic market, but also internationally. It just makes Canada a much harder country to deal with um, for the groups who are trying to manufacture these these um, cures or, or vaccines. And so, yeah, in the article, I just outline all of the negative externalities that occur as a result of suspending patents and make the case saying, that there are plenty of examples that show that it's actually not necessary. There's enough cooperation and collaboration uh, in the space that uh, it's not needed to, to do that. And, and so much so that I actually think that um, a much better approach for regulators in Canada, and, and I think that this would apply elsewhere as well, would be things like easing the regulatory approval process for These vaccines and drugs, once they're approved, um, specifically from OECD countries, so countries who have that same comparable standard, uh, getting rid of tariffs on medical equipment. Um, So more often than not, uh, as we've seen, various countries have to import this medical equipment. uh, And with that importation process, there are tariffs. Um, So having a a stronger commitment to free trade, uh, especially on the medical side, would go a long way. To helping Canada in terms of its response.
1: All right, you to here, folks? So you can listen. To, uh, listen, you can listen to David's article if you want. He'll he'll read it to you. But uh, otherwise, you can uh, find that on our website, Consumer Choice Radio. And there's plenty more from our colleagues. Uh, I mean, the the amount of articles and products that we we're, we're able to put out there is amazing and very happy and proud that we can do so much even at this time. So, as you well know, you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker, 1067 FM. David, I would like to heap some praise upon someone that we've discussed on this program before, and it is Mr. Musk.
0: (laughs) Elon Musk, who's slowly turning into the lead character from an Ayn Rand novel.
1: Yeah, he is. Um, I think right now, you know, we've been covering a little bit about what's been happening with him. And uh, we we played that investor call uh, that he had, you know, he made his first kind of comments about how it was destroying people's freedom. People needed to be able to go out. Uh, He went on the Joe Rogan program and sort of explained that a bit more. And then then the knives came out. Actually, now I can I can play this uh, one more time. To then the knives came out um, specifically from California Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. And you might remember that because we've discussed her on the program. And with Brendan Carr, we actually did discuss her law, and it is hers, the AB5 contracting yeah. law, the anti-contractor law. She championed it, wrote it, introduced it. And as we well know, it has destroyed thousands of jobs in California. Tons of companies are thinking of moving because of this. A lot of people who are even journalists have now lost their jobs or positions because of the different rules that do not allow freelancers anymore. And um, she came out with this tweet when Elon Musk was talking about the issues with the stay-at-home order in his particular county in California and talking about why he wants to move. She just comes out with a tweet that says, F... Elon Musk (laughs) that's radio friendly version of course
0: yes yes the radio friendly version and I think what unfolded after that was so beautiful it was essentially Elon Musk replying to this tweet being like noted like I've taken note of your um, your transgression against me he then goes further to basically say, okay, well, I think we're probably going to move to Texas. Yeah, um, I don't even know why we're in California anymore. This escalates, um, and counties in Texas are essentially sending open letters directly to Elon Musk or via Twitter, saying, "Hey, you should come here. We're near. We're near the Mexican border. We have a long history of auto manufacturing. We'd love it if Tesla uh, moved to this." This area, we're ready. He is responding to these, being like, "Okay, great, you've been added to the list," as, this, as if there's some like official sweepstakes. Um, and 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 then other governors are chiming in, like Colorado's governor uh, Jared Polis, who I think is is uh, a, a great governor, uh, chimed in on Twitter, basically saying, "Whoa, whoa, hold on, you got to consider Colorado," and he listed his reasons. Um, and so now you just have like, you have legislators and regulators <laughs> essentially trying to get their their state or their county or their city into the Tesla sweepstakes, um, and the backlash that this assemblywoman got, has gotten now in California has been uh, pretty pretty substantial because all of a sudden people are like, wait, whoa, hold on, like you're actually. Pushing this huge manufacturer out of California—that's—I don't know how many thousands of people work at Tesla's plant, but I can only assume it's, it's like ten in the thousands 000. of thousands.
1: It's like ten, ten or 20,000, ten thousand maybe, something like this.
0: Yeah, and so I mean, you you completely decimate um, the job markets and and job market and prospect for that uh, that county. Um, all because they would move to Texas, and it's just like it, it's watching this unfold in real time is just hilarious because Elon Musk is now at the point where he just doesn't care. oh yeah, um, yeah, he just doesn't care. I mean he opened he opened their plant and basically said, Yeah, I know we're not supposed to be open, but we're opening it. I'm gonna be on the floor, and if they're arresting anyone, they can arrest me,
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, and you've heard the response from all the other states and counties, you know.
0: I am once again asking for your financial support.
1: They want Tesla. They want Elon Musk. And and it's true. And and we've discussed what is happening with California. We've talked about the issues there specifically for consumers and consumer regulation. Um, just imagine being an entrepreneur. Goodness. Yeah, there's a lot going well, and- on there. Too much to too much to even, I think if, again, we if we had a Consumer Choice Center Bureau in California, I think we'd need about 87 employees.
0: Yeah. I mean The thing I love the most about this is it's just a perfect example of regulations have consequences. And you can put your head down and have your horse blinders on and continue to proceed forward and pass these very strict or onerous regulations, but at some point, there is a kickback or there is a response and part of that response is businesses leaving if they can um and so i think that's the real important lesson here is that there are consequences and now we see them in real time
1: there you go this is um yeah it's an interesting age and i think um you know i'm very grateful that i've got a lot of uh, media that I'm able to follow and groups that are fighting for ways to improve things right now. I think that that's super important. I mean, that that's why Elon Musk and seeing him uh, be loud and proud. You know, he's become the kind of face of the. I, I don't want to use the f- phrase resistance, because stupid, futile. <laughs> but he's become you know someone who's just arguing for common sense, for economic sanity. And because, and I have heard this in, in specifically in California and many of these counties, you know, it's not as if it's all these doctors making these decisions. These are usually bureaucrats that are in the various health departments, um, some of which have administration experience, some might have some medical experience, but this is not all principally, you know, the council of doctors that's being asked this. And as you well know in your own life, every doctor's got a different opinion. So I'm not sure. The, the, the main issue is that the state has opened up business, uh, somewhat, Mm -hmm. but the county where he has, was, was reluctant to. And I don't know, this is, uh, luckily I'm not in that position. And I know that we do our jobs digitally, David, so we don't have to deal with that, but yeah, this is, um, Elon Musk, v all.
0: Yes. Yeah. It would be interesting to see how this plays out. And it's also interesting because it's, Although it's in the context of the Carol Baskin virus, it's like finally some non-Carol Baskin virus-related news. Yeah, um, it's it's, so. <laughs> it's not
1: about infect. It's like stuff that we can't control is infections going up or down, or this kind of treatment or whatever. But if it's about you know what the rules of the county are and you know debating whether or not it's effective, yeah, <laughs> I'm all in. So yeah, yes, I say absolutely. we do not deserve this man. I think there's there's just a lot of stuff going on. Um yeah in the in the last couple of minutes here David there there are some some good news some good things to look forward to um we do have um some sports opening up I know that the German uh, soccer league is opening up at the end of the month the, there's actually a NASCAR race on Sunday it'll be in Darlington South Carolina Very first race um and it's going to be on Main Fox so there actually might be I mean, there's a lot of sports-craved uh, people right now. I think maybe they'll they'll turn on... Darlington's a very good race, so there might be something very good there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the quicker we can get some sort of sports back, the better. I think that that would... I mean, this sounds cliche to say, but people people are, are now starting to talk more and more about like the mental health aspects of all of this. And I think that that is um maybe an understated value of sports in terms of entertainment and and the enjoyment that people get from it so i think there's going to be a huge impact on the availability of sports even one race here maybe a tour has a turn um but yeah i think this is a this is a big, big positive uh and people are going to love it
1: Definitely. So, yeah, big change, good things coming, um, things opening back up. Um, Apart from that, there's been a couple other stories we wanted to get to, but, you know, we figured out we go on a high note. And I believe, David, you came to the table with a clip that we wanted to play. Um, I think this uh, fits into the theme of understanding what government is doing and what it's all about. Um, So give us the intro. Give us the lowdown.
0: Yes. So this clip is from the Canadian House of Commons. It is an exchange between uh, Canada's finance minister, uh, who, so it's the, the finance minister, Liberal Party, the the government, um, the, the party in power, and Pierre Paulevere, who is a conservative politician. And a lot of the debate that's been going on in Canada is about where the country is headed fiscally, um, who are getting, who are the people getting benefits, uh, but more importantly, where... What's the trajectory of the national debt? And so this exchange is a series of questions from uh, Member of Parliament Boliver to Bill Morneau, the Finance Minister, which uh, is both extremely entertaining and extremely irritating. So Jamie, will you uh, will you play this clip?
3: Through this time, with support not only for businesses but for individuals to get through and get a bridge to a better time.
4: Well, yeah, just the dollar value. Honourable Minister,
3: and that's a continuing commitment, Mr.
4: Speaker. Oh yeah. <laughs> I know we shouldn't ask the Minister about numbers. He's just the Finance Minister, after all. Uh, but what is the uh, equity of the Government of Canada's balance on the Government of Canada's balance sheet? Honourable Minister,
3: Mr. Speaker, I would advise Member of Carleton to memorize those Auditor General figures for his next foray into the House of Commons.
4: We'll, 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 we'll probably so the So, the, the Minister has claimed that our balance sheet is strong. There are three components to a balance sheet. The assets, the liabilities, and the equity. And the Minister doesn't know any of the three. So clearly he doesn't actually know anything about our balance sheet. That's reassuring. Now, according to the Auditor General, the net negative net worth of our Government of Canada will be as much as a trillion dollars by the end of this fiscal year. Can the Minister, if he's familiar with any of these numbers, tell us, is it possible his government will hit a trillion dollars of debt this year? Minister Finance.
3: Mr. Speaker, I want to assure Canadians that our approach will be to continue to make investments on their behalf, and that is available to us because of our strong fiscal position, but we will continue to take that approach, which we think is the appropriate approach.
4: Absolutely. Well, yeah. A trillion dollars, yes or no? The Honourable Minister. Mr. Speaker, as I said, we will
3: continue to focus on the uh, importance of supporting Canadians.
4: Mr. Baliev, What is the size of our current national debt? The Honourable Minister.
3: And Mr. Speaker, uh, I think that what will happen as we do that is we will allow ourselves to have a stronger economy at the end because of these investments.
4: Mr. The size of the national debt? The Honourable Minister.
3: And uh, we have always seen, Mr. Speaker, that these investments, they're not only supporting Canadians, they're supporting businesses, so that we do have a strong economy
4: and a strong fiscal position coming out of this position. Mr. Pagliav. Does the Finance Minister know the size of our national debt? The Honourable Minister. The interpreters. Mr. Speaker,
3: uh, I will continue to focus our efforts, as we believe we should focus them on supporting Canadians through this time.
1: Why? Why? I just don't understand. Why didn't he just answer? Just say something. I don't. This this so frustrated me. I, I saw this floating around a little bit on, on Twitter, David. But man, what is what is wrong with Melno? Really?
0: I don't get it. I, do, I mean, if if you don't know, just say hey, we don't know. He's. He had, or if you he do know, play,
1: he had to play like the smooth talking politician guy. <laughs> it's like it's like you asking me ask me how much is on my credit card yeah <laughs> I mean, well, David, it, it, you know I, I you know people use credit cards and they're important to use at this time, so we're gonna stay very vigilant with using it
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's so weird, I mean, if he's like, is debt gonna hit a trillion dollars um I mean he, a better non answer would be, our hope is that it wouldn't,
1: yeah, now that's what he could have said, but that's it. That's it. This is the kind of stuff that, you know, we're here to bring you here on Consumer Choice Radio. I mean, look, we're, we've got to expose these guys, and we've got to find out where where these things are happening. And, look, we're trying to be vigilant and protect uh, the rights and choice for all consumers. So, yeah, hope you've uh, enjoyed the program. You've been listening here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com is the website. Please subscribe to the podcast version. Continue listening on the radio every Saturday at 10 I am one half of your host, Iola Sosky, reporting from Vienna, and I wish you all the best.
0: Yep, and this is David Clement signing off. We'll talk to you all next week.